Second Samuel chapter 12. This afternoon we will be considering verses 1 to 14. And I read, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but a little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I will add to you as much more. Why do you, why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up against you, I will rise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do these things before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly spawned the Lord, the child will, who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Let us pray and ask the Lord for help as we hear his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you and uh, we ask you that you would help us to understand your word this evening as we look at it. We pray that we would see Christ and his work in our lives. We pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to not only understand the truth from your word, but to apply them and leave them out in our lives. Please help us. Help me 
to be faithful, clear, and simple as I teach your word this evening. For we pray and ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So one of the things that happened in the, I think it should be late 90s, to dissuade people from cigarette smoking, because cigarette smoking uh, still is um, something that public health officials have been against, and they've tried to fight against it, push against it, but with little success. But one of the ways that they uh, tried to help people to stop smoking, to leave that habit, was to display to them the damage, the great damage that cigarette smoking does to the human body. And they pushed and they pushed and laws have been adopted in many parts of the world right now where today, if you buy a, a pack of cigarettes, you will realize that on the side of the pack, cigarette packs, what is there? You have images of the damages that are done by cigarette on the body, isn't it? You, for example, have teeth, you know, that are rotten right there. As you buy this thing, you should see its the, what it's, it does to you, you should see how it damages your body. Some of them have these graphic images of, you know, a human liver. You know, a normal liver on one side, and then a liver that of someone who smokes, or on one side, the, the, the lungs of a healthy person who doesn't smoke, and then on the other side, the lungs of a person who smokes. And you can see the, how they've been degraded, how they've shrunken how some of them have turned color and they look really horrid. And this campaign really helped because the more people began seeing the horrors of cigarette smoking, guess what? People began staying away from smoking. And that's a good thing to do. It's always good that sometimes when you are explaining to someone how bad something is, it's always good to begin by showing them how horrific it is, how terrible it is. And in this passage, passage that we're going to be examining this evening, we have a parable that is given by the prophet Nathan. A parable that might seem simple, might seem like a nice story, but in it, it shows the horrors, the great damage that sin does to a person. It shows the cruelty. It shows the way that sin is such an ugly thing. And so this parable, I would say, gives us a very nice anatomy of sin. It cuts sin, it opens up sin, and it exposes the various parts of sin so that we can examine its nature, so that we can see its damage on us. And so even as we look at this parable and see how Nathan uses it, the prophet Nathan uses it so well 
to bring out the sin of David, to show the horrors of the sin of David. I want us not just to look at David, I want us to look at ourselves and see the horrors of our own sin so that we may see the damage that our own sin is doing to us. That little white sin of yours, that little pet sin of yours, I want you to see that it has fangs. It is poisonous, it is venomous, and it is causing so much damage to you. And so I want us to look at three things as we observe the horror of sin. And let me say this even before we look at the first one. I also want the unbeliever who is seated here. You know, you're living in your sin and you're okay. You're thinking, well, it's just a little bit of sin. I don't sleep around. I don't drink like those other people. I'm okay. I want you to see that that sin, those little lies that you tell, that those evil thoughts that you have are still horrifying. That sin and even the, 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 the smallest of sin, even the most uh, cutest of sin, it's still something that is horrifying. So let us look at three things that are horrifying about sin as we examine the words of Nathan to David. So first of all, please observe with me that sin makes us or causes us to despise our privileges. It's a horrifying thing that sin makes someone who is so greatly blessed, someone who has great advantages, to despise the very advantages and the very blessings that they've been given. As we look at this passage, we see that Nathan, having been sent of the Lord <coughs> to, to, to Tell David of his sin. He comes to him. And he says, he begins by giving him this parable of two men. One, greatly privileged in a blessed position. And another man in a not so privileged position. There were two men in the city. One rich and the other poor. And look at what we are told about the rich man. The rich man had what? Had very many flock and herd. Note that. He had a lot. He didn't just have many. He had very many. He was greatly blessed. He had a lot of sheep. He had a lot of cattle. He had so much that he had. But then there was a poor man, and he had nothing but a little ewe lamb. And this man looks at all his flock. We are told one time, Nathan says that there is this visitor who came to the house of this rich man. And the rich man looks at his flock, the very many, very many flock. He looked at his goat, he looks at his sheep, he looked at his cattle, and he looked at all of them and decided, you know what, I don't want this. I want that little lamb that that poor man has. 
what we learn from this passage or what we see from this passage is that sin begins and sin is identified by the discontentment and the despising of privilege that it has. For example, observe the first scene of the fallen angel, Lucifer. What are we told about him? He lived in a very privileged place, isn't it? In heaven. He was in the presence of God. But what happened? He despises his station. He decides, you know what? I don't want to be in this place in heaven. I will go and be seated on the throne of the Most High. He despises his position. The angels that are fallen, if you look at the book of the, at the letter of Jude, he talks about them doing what? Despising their station, isn't it? They despised where God had put them. The first man that fell, how did Adam and Eve fall? They despised all the privileges God had given to them. Can you imagine? You are living in a garden where you are told you can eat of any tree. Think about the thousands and the thousands of trees that were on the whole earth, let alone the garden of Eden. The whole earth. They could eat of any tree. Just one tree. One tree you shall not eat of it. And what did Adam and Eve do? They looked at the fact that we cannot eat of this one tree. They forgot about all the other trees that they could eat from and their minds just focused them on one tree. That is sin. Sin causes you to look at every, uh, rather, Sin makes you to stop looking at every blessing that God has given you and suddenly just makes you focus on that one little thing that God keeps away from you. Isn't it true? That one little thing that you do not have. Look at this. Keep on looking at this. Put more focus on this. And you end up despising your privilege. You end up despising the blessing that God has given to you. David's sin is a sin that, as we see here, is sparked by discontentment. Look at what God says to him in verse 8, for example. He says, Nathan says to him, <clears throat> I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house, your master's walks into your and arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. But what did you do, David? Why have you despised the word of God? Why have you despised the blessings of God? This is the heart of sin. This is why sin is so evil. It is to focus on or stop focusing on the many blessings you have and just look at the one thing that you do not have. 
the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but decided, I want what the poor man had. The Lord had given to David all that he could ever need, and even more. Yet he chose to take Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. David's sin is horrifying because he sinned in a position of abundance. Just like with our first parents, they were in a position of abundance. They had all that they need. You know, it's just like if someone is presented before a judge. And this, I've read of stories and I've, I've seen of videos where you have uh, these big movie stars, Hollywood stars, who earn millions. They go to shops and shoplift. It's a thing that they do. I don't know whether they do it for, for fun. It's beyond me. Why would you earn millions of dollars? You're a big movie star. And then you go to a shop or to a little supermarket, and you steal a perfume worth maybe like one US dollar. That's something, but it's something that the people in Hollywood are doing. Maybe they're doing it for the sake of publicity. But can you imagine if someone like that, if you are a judge, and this person is brought before you, and you ask them, oh, so you stole a loaf of bread. Oh, okay, so... What happened? Why did you steal that loaf of bread? Is it that your children were hungry? Is it that you don't earn enough? Oh no, your honor, I actually made 200 million US dollars doing one movie and have three other movies coming up. As a judge, what would you do to such a person? You just sentence them to the maximum that the law gives, isn't it? Because you wonder, surely, I mean, you have more money than anyone on the, in this courtroom. You've, you probably earn more than I could ever earn. You even earn more than the person who owns the shop. And yet you go and you steal. You steal from a position of abundance. That's why sin is so horrifying. Whenever we sin, dear brethren, we sin not because we lack. We sin because we choose to ignore the blessings that God has given. Why do you have envy in your heart? It's because you stop looking at the blessings you have, and suddenly the blessings that someone else has are more shiny than yours, isn't it? The job that someone else has is far more better than yours. The, you know, if you look at their family and you look at their, uh, their home, and all these things, and you're just wondering, oh, I just wish I had that. We sin because we sin out of a position of abundance. Like Adam, our father, we have so much. God has given us so much, and yet we reject him. We despise his word. We despise his provision. This is what David is told. You have despised the word of God. You have despised me. I promised you that I would keep you. I promised you that I would give you all that you need. But yet you decided to take the one thing that is forbidden. 
David had it all. This king had it all. And yet sinned. And sinned in a position of abundance. And that is why, for those who are listening to me, that is why God pours his wrath on sin. That's why God will not excuse our sin. That's why God will not allow us to get away with sin because sin is despising him. It is telling God, yes, God, you've given me this, but no, I wanted this other thing. It's like a little child in a house full of toys and food in the refrigerator and, and, and all that they could ever have at home. And yet they go outside and steal. You've heard of such stories, isn't it? That some of the crimes that are being committed in Nairobi are from children who come from well-off families. Families. It's not that they lack food. It's not that they lack a place to sleep. And you can imagine the bitterness and the anger and, and the frustration it brings from their parents. Imagine that I have given you, my son, my daughter, all that you could ever need. And yet you go outside and steal? How much more the God of heaven who has given you and I all that we could ever need? And yet we still despise him by sinning against him. But even as we look at the story of this great king, let me say this, that as we still look at this point, that there is a different king, a great king or a greater king, the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was tempted and tried, not in a position of privilege, but he was tempted and tried in a wilderness, a dry, hostile wilderness. And we are told in the Bible that he overcame. You remember the first Adam? The first Adam was tried and tested in a, in a position of abundance, in a garden full of food, isn't it? He had all that he could ever want. He was tried and he sinned. What about the second Adam? The second Adam is tried and tested in the desert. One thing we know about the desert is that there is no trees. There is no fruit. There is nothing to eat. That's where the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, was tested. Not in a position of abundance, but now in a hostile environment. Not like David who had all the material blessings. Christ was tried and tempted in a situation where he even said, the Son of Man had, has nowhere to do what? To lay his head. And he overcame. He overcame so that those who repent, those who believe in him, those who put their faith in him, will be saved. Will be counted righteous. And so even as we look at the horror of sin, even as you look at the horror of your own sin, I want you to look at the greatness and the beauty of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great Son of David, was tempted 
like us in every way, yet without sin, and who hung on the cross, and who died so that sinners like you and me may be forgiven of God. So that's the first thing I want us to see, that sin makes us to despise our privilege, and oh, what a horrible, horrible thing. But then secondly, Observe that sin makes us to desire that which is forbidden. They are related with the first point. But sin isn't simply being dissatisfied with what we have. Sin pushes us to another level. We not only despise the blessings we have, we not only despise our lives, we not only despise God's provision in our lives, we now take that which doesn't belong to us. Look at what the prophet Nathan said. That this rich man whom we are told about, now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or had to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come. And look at the response of David when he hears about this. Then David, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. How can this man take that which doesn't belong to him? How could, you, how could he do such a thing? And Nathan says, you are the man. You are the one who has taken that which belongs to another. That which doesn't belong to you. You, David, why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in, in, your, in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. And have taken his wife to be your wife. And have killed him with the sword of the Ammonite. David, how could you do this? You knew that this was forbidden of you. One of the things that we see that the law of God forbid kings to do was to do what? To increase gold, to increase their horses, and to increase wives. Do not keep gold as a king. Do not get horses for yourself. Do not add wives into your house. So David knew this. He knew the law of God. He knew that he had been forbidden to take Bathsheba as his wife. It was wrong. It was evil. He knew the law of God, but yet decided that I want her, I will take her. Sin is always connected with it. The, the, those evil desires of the heart. 
We just don't sin out of the blue. We want something. We desire it. We ache for it. And we think, and or sin, what sin tells us is, if you only take that fruit, oh, if you only take Bathsheba to be your wife, ah, you will be happier. That's the lie that sin keeps on telling us. Sin tells us, oh, you just need to take this one thing that God is keeping from you. And guess what? Once you take it, you will have joy. You know, if you just take that bribe, that 10 million bribe, oh, imagine how it would be able to solve the problems in your life. You'll now be able to pay the school fees for your children. Ah, you'll now even be able to take care of your relatives. The issues, the health issues that your parents have, they will be sorted out. And sin begins to show you the sweetness of the forbidden. Sin is ugly. It's filthy because of this. It wants you to go against God's very law to satisfy yourself. It is actually telling you that the, it, it's like the reason why God is keeping you from that thing is because God doesn't care about you. Isn't that what he, uh, the devil told the woman in the garden? God is keeping something from you. This fruit, if you eat of it, you, God knows that you will be able to have knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. Like him, he is keeping something from you. He is keeping me from the enjoyment of riches here on earth. God is keeping me from enjoying marriage. And therefore, if I can only just date this person, yes, they are an unbeliever. I know that they are not in Christ, but oh, if I just marry them, everything will be okay. This is what the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 9 verse 17 to warn us about the dangers of sin, or, or rather the, the way sin entices us. Stolen water is sweet. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. That's what sin tells you, isn't it? To steal those waters. But then it doesn't tell you that they will be sweet initially, but then after some time, bitterness, isn't it? Pain, horror, trouble. The words of Nathan are clear as to the forbidden which David took violently to enjoy himself against the will of God. You, David, struck down Uriah. You killed in order to take that which was forbidden. And by the way, there's always that 
aspect of violence and pride whenever we sin against God. Even though we might say, well, you know, I really felt sorry even when I was sinning. No, you are not. There was pride in your heart. You are doing it against God's will. You knew what you were doing. You are saying, yes, God, I understand what you are saying. I get what you are saying, but I know more than you. And you pluck fruit. And you take for yourself. We see here that Nathan brings out the immodesty of David's desire for that which was forbidden. He craved and he wanted Bathsheba. He had no regard for God or for man, but is concerned more about his self-satisfaction. And by the way, that's, another, that's, that's why sin is so wicked. No one else cares. No one else matters. I don't care what happens to other people. I don't even care what happens to this person. My needs, my wants, come number one. I don't care whether I'm destroying the life of this other person. I'll come first. That's how hor horrifying sin is. It is the ultimate picture of selfishness. Do you want to see selfishness in all its uh, glory, if I can put it that way? Look at your sin. Look at your sin. Look at you doing and taking that which is forbidden. You will see the fangs. You will see the ugliness of sin. No regard for man. He's even willing to kill Uriah so that he may be satisfied. I am number one. As long as I get this. Whoever gets in my way, I will crush them. I am willing to pull people down. I am willing to malign other people. I am willing to think evil of other people. As long as I get my way, I get satisfied. The horror of sin. But then thirdly, and as I conclude, <coughs> so we've seen that sin makes us to despise our privilege, we become discontent, we don't count the blessings that we have, it makes us to desire that which is forbidden and to take it for ourselves. But then the, I would say the biggest reason why sin is horrifying is because sin brings God's fierce judgment. On man. So after Nathan brings out David's sin, this is what he says to him. Now, therefore, in other words, this is the consequence of your sin. This is the fruit of your sin. You remember the sweet waters that were stolen? You remember the bread eaten in secret? 
and how delicious it was. Now, therefore, now, therefore, this is the end of sin. And that's why, no matter how sweet sin is, it always leads to a bitter end. Painful end. Now, therefore, the, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wife before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. One of the things that is indeed horrifying about sin is the fact that what is done in secret will be declared in the, in the rooftops. For me, that's, that's a horrifying reality. That God will expose sin. Even the best hidden sin. Even the well-hidden sin, it will be exposed. The most horrifying aspect of sin is not only what it does to us. Yes, what it, sin does to us, horrible. Or what it causes us to do to other, others, horrible. But the main reason and the ultimate reason why sin is such a horror is that it leads or it brings God's judgment. Sin is horrifying because it brings God's fierce judgment upon us. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10 and verse 31, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Nothing as fearful as falling into the hands of the living God. Imagine of all the terrors. You know, sometimes someone can ask you, you know, what's, what's the most horrific thing that you could ever think? And someone might say, well, you know, being eaten alive by a crocodile. Or, or being locked up in a cage with a tiger. You know, those are indeed horrifying, isn't it? Or to be thrown into a well full of snakes. You know, there are just so many, isn't it? But the writer of Hebrews is saying, of all the horrors that you could ever experience, there is nothing as horrifying as falling into the hands of the living God. Why is it horrifying? No one can save you from his hands. You cannot escape from his hands. You cannot bribe away yourself from his hands. You cannot out-argue yourself from his hands. And this is what is a consequence of sin. We see here that David, Nathan proclaims to David that because of this, the Lord will not allow you, David, to go away unpunished. Though you remain my servant, 
you will still not go away and punish. What you have done, David, was a violent attack on the glory of God. And by the way, one of the things we need to see from this passage is that every sin is, first of all, a violent attack on the glory of God, and then an assault on the person we have wronged. If I lie to you, I have first of all trampled the glory of God. And then I have lied to you. I have offended you. And that is why, by the way, whenever we confess of our sins, we just don't tell the other person, you know, sorry, I'm, I'm sorry I did that. Forgive me. We have to always, first of all, go before God. Because all sin is, first of all, sin against the glory of God. God will not allow his glory to go and trample, uh, uh, to be trampled and go unforgiven. In verse 14, actually, he says, because you, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. And actually, the passage, if you look at your Bible, it has a mark there, number two. And then down there it says, the Masoretic text says, the enemies of the Lord. In other words, the, what, what David had done was to make the name of God be mocked, to be despised, that the king of Israel, the king of God's people, can do this. God was not going to let him get away with it. The King James actually puts it this way. Because this deed that thou hast, uh, uh, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. You know, our sin is not simply our sin. Our sin forces other people to blaspheme. Why is it that as a church we do not allow sin? to continue in our midst, in our membership. Why, for example, has God given churches the tool of excommunication? It is because if you do not deal with sin, what happens? It spreads. Sin is like a cancer. It spreads. When other people see this person blaspheming the name of the Lord, they are also going to say, ah, if they've gotten away with it, you can also do that and get away with it. Therefore, David is being punished so that it may be seen that no one gets away with sin. By this you have caused a great occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme him. And the Lord will not allow blaspheme. He will not especially allow his people, you and I, to be the ones who cause his name to be blasphemed. And we see here that God sets himself to punish David. And he promises that the sword will devour his house. And what does that mean? You know, that the sword shall never depart from your house. It's a picture of judgment, isn't it? What we will see, Lord willing, or even if you read your Bible, 
you will see that there is a series of judgments that will play out in the house of David. For example, this is fulfilled by the murder of Ammon in 2 Samuel 13 and verse 28 at the hands of Absalom. This is fulfilled by the death of Absalom as a rebel in 2 Samuel 18 and verse 14. This is fulfilled in the execution of Adonijah, another son of David, as a traitor in 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 25. And this is fulfilled by the loss of the child that David and Bathsheba conceived. These are the result of David's sin. How many sons are those? Four sons. Three of them lost violently. A violent death. I mean, nothing, there's nothing as horrible to a, a parent as, you know, imagining your, your children dying a horrifying, violent death. And David has to see some of this. And it's a painful thing. Three of his sons die by the sword. That's the danger of sin, dear brother. That's why sin is so horrifying. God will punish the guilty. And Nathan then tells him <clears throat> that even the child will die. This child who is born to you shall die. But also notice that in spite of yes, this situation, it's a horrible situation. It's a horrible judgment. And we need to stay away from sin because of this. Fight sin because of this. But one of the ways we fight sin is by running to the great son of David. Why? Notice that the sins of David are set aside or forgiven. Do you see that in um, verse 13? David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die. You wonder what is happening? How is it that the Lord just forgives the sins of David? Why and how can this happen? Maybe you're looking at this, if you're there and you, maybe you knew Uriah, you are a friend to Uriah and, and, and you are there at his wedding. You might look at that and wonder, why, oh Lord, would you excuse such sin? Well, because God in his mercy has made a way or has made his people, the sins of his people, to be forgiven. How? That we see that there is another son of David who will die a violent death. The great son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, will have the sword of God's judgment fall upon him. Not because he is a sinner, but because he will take upon himself the sins of men, including the sins of David. 
this is what this is a, one of the prophecies about Christ that is also mentioned in the uh, Gospel of Matthew. It's a very interesting uh, prophecy in Zechariah 13 and verse 7. This is what it says. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. And who is this shepherd? Who is this who is next to the Lord? It is Christ, isn't it? The great son of David. That the reason why God's judgment has been taken away from us is not because God just said, okay, I'm so sorry. Okay, I, I feel you are... I, or I see how you have genuinely repented, oh David. Let me just brush that seed, uh, that, that sin under the carpet. No. Sin, the sins of David, the sin of David had to be punished. David deserved death. David deserved to be stoned to death. But why does he live? Because the sword of God fell on Christ on the cross. The one who was without sin, the holy, righteous, pure Lamb of God, hung on the cross like a thief, mocked like a thief, was rejected by God on the cross. Such that the son had to cry, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Because of our sins. And that is why we can then run to the cross. No matter how horrifying, no matter how terrifying our sins are. And yes, our sins are horrible. They are so venomous, poisonous. But the antidote to our sin is to flee to the cross. Is to run to that place where the sword of God's justice that is supposed to fall on sinful men falls on the Lamb of God. And his blood is shed. This great son of David is there for the sinner, uh, the, the, the friend of the sinner. Is there for the one whom sinners can flee to for salvation. If you are not in Christ, if you are still in your sin, the sins bother you. Your conscience is bothering you on your sin. Don't hide your sin. Whoever hides his sin will not prosper. Oh, do not hide your sin. Rather, bring it to the cross. Lay it at the feet of Christ. Put your hope in him. Repent of your sin. Put your hope in him, the great son of David. And you will be forgiven. And he will give you his righteousness. He will give you his obedience. And you will not die. When you stand before God, you will not die eternally. You will not be cast into eternal hell. Your sin will be put away. And you shall not die. Those are the words say to David. Those are the words I will say to you. You repent of your sins and believe in Christ. This is yours. For the believers who are here, again, an encouragement for us to always run to the cross. 
before we even think about coming up with tactics and formulas to fight sin, run to the cross. Run to the cross. No matter what sin you may have committed, no matter how ugly it is, no matter how wicked the sin might be such that you can't even say it, not just in public, you can't even say to someone one-on-one, -on -one, run to the cross, run to the great son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because on him fell the sword of God's judgment. On him fell the wrath of God, so that now sinners are free. Sinners are reconciled to their God. Sinners are said to be justified. Now let me, in conclusion, read the words of Romans, which are the words of David, so that we see, yes, sin is so horrifying. But here is the antidote of sin in Romans chapter 4. Verse 6 to 8. I'll read them and then I'll pray. Romans chapter 4 verse 6 to 8. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Listen to this. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we come before you this evening. We see the deep darkness of David's sin. And as we look at this passage, we see the deep darkness of our own sin. And oh Lord, we thank you that we have seen that Heavenly Father, you have provided a way for escape from the judgment that our sin deserves. That our sin, because of our sin, the sword of your judgment is upon us, but that those who flee to Christ, the great shepherd, the shepherd on whom the sword of God's ju judgment and wrath fell on, we are now saved. We are now free. Oh, Heavenly Father, help us that we would hide ourselves in the great son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, who on that cross bore our judgment. May we find our peace, our security, our safety from the ugliness of our own sin in him. And may this truth, this reality give us much peace. So we thank you, Lord, for this blessing and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.